We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints. What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to matchmake your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now. So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say? I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots, and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power, and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soul Fire production. Hello and welcome to Reclamation Radio. I am here with my friend, an ally, and in many ways, spiritual father figure, Dr. Tom Cowan, who I am excited to be in conversation with, not only for this hour, but also for an event that we are collaborating to put together on February 25th that we're calling Science and Eros. So we're going to present to you sort of an hors d'oeuvre conversation around the reality of science, whether it's biology, history, medicine, all the way to relationships and the ways in which these same patterns of deception and illusion and self-betrayal can show up in so many different dimensions of our life. So welcome, Tom. I'm excited to chitty chat today. 
Thanks, Kelly. And it's always interesting because, you know, we've had a chance to talk outside of being recorded. And I think usually when you talk to somebody, it's kind of builds upon the previous conversation. But then I realize the other people haven't been part of the conversation. (laughs) So I can't assume that they know, oh, yeah, well, we talked about that before. So it's true. Yeah. And that's why I'm excited actually about this event, because I, I intend, and I know you do too, for it to be a, like a compendium, like a summary, a sort of like capture of so much of what we have been talking about, which is the ways in which all of these different topics are connected. And I always tell you, you have so many pearls of wisdom that are scattered all over the internet and they need to be put together in one place. So I, I feel like it could be a satisfying experience for so many who who resonate. And I know that One of the things that we both agree on, one of many things, is that the truth is not scary, right? And I've often referenced that one of the one of the ways I know you're enlightened is because you are funny, because you have so much levity and lightness and you crack me up all the time. And the way that you handle these very grave (laughs) truths is with a very light touch. And I think that you know, you and I both see how if you don't question deeply enough, you can get trapped in this, this layer of truthing, if you will, this sort of superficial realm of inquiry, which is actually pretty scary, right? Like if you don't question deeply enough around, I'm sure one of the topics we'll touch on, which is, you know, contagion, infection, germ theory, you could end up just applying, you know, endless amounts of of vitamin C and zinc or whatever to your fear of other people's bodies and the invisible enemy. And so what I think we like to do, and, and you are far more advanced at this than I am, is to just keep going, keep questioning, you know, keep asking, is this true? How do we know that this is true? And that that's, I think, you know, how you would define free thinking, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's, I mean, there's a whole lot I could say about that. But one of the things is, I would say, fortunately, but maybe unfortunately, up till now in my life, and I'm, you know, not a spring chicken, as they say, but I have rarely run across things that I would say, there's no way I'm going there. Right. And I hear that from a lot of people, like, I'll say something which to me is just like somewhere between interesting and funny. <laughs> yeah, that's a good place right? to live. Yeah. Like this isn't the way you were told. Like there's no virus. And some people it seems like it sort of threatens their whole way of life almost. Like almost like I can't live unless that's true. And I think to myself, what's the big deal? Like, if there's no virus, there's no virus. Like, why why would that be a sort of, quote, soul-crushing experience? So in some ways, I've been blessed that I haven't really run into that. On the other side of that is I have a feeling it's coming, that there will be something, I don't know when, that, wait a minute, like, and I'll have more of an understanding of what people are going through. Like I get to the point where that just, I just cannot go on. Like, And I don't know what that's going to feel like, because I really haven't been there. And I don't think I will like it. But 
<laughs> but I'm ready. I've been preparing myself for it. And I think that's, you know, when I think about also what we're trying to do with this summit, and I would say, and I know we've talked about this a little bit, and I, you know, I think I'd love to hear your opinion on this too. I've kind of decided in a funny sort of way, even though I spent a lot of my time like, quote, teaching people, that I'm not really doing this to teach people anything, or certainly not convince people of anything. I'm only doing this because I wonder whether it's right or not. Mm. And somehow looking into it deeply enough to give like a talk on something, like I don't want to sound like a total idiot. So I get up there and like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say next. So, And I've had occasions where I'm in the middle of saying something publicly even. And a lot of my things I think, you know, are live. And I'm, I have this feeling or this sense of, wait a minute, this isn't true. And then what do you do? Or what do I do? And so I, do I back off? Do I, I'm usually pretty good at skirting my way around that. So I hope that people see this as somebody's exploration into what is real, or what is true, or I don't know what the word is. And that somehow it helps. Well, I mean, I don't even know if it helps you. I think it will to hear somebody else on that path, what they have come to. But I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why our, our work is so complimentary, because as you know, I have many perspectives on why people cannot change, why they cannot think yeah. freely. And some of the like humble origins of the ways that we get stuck and how it is that our framework, even if it it's a scary one, can meet our needs, right? And we we sort of build an entire lifestyle based on these beliefs and the change associated with those beliefs would restructure our lifestyle in such a way that maybe our primary needs wouldn't be met. But I think that one of the reasons that you can't relate to so many of these folks is because for whatever reason, I've observed that you don't have change coupled with being bad and wrong. And what I mean by that is that for you to, I've heard you say it a million times, like I was wrong about that, or I don't know, or maybe this is true, maybe not, right? So not only can you rest in uncertainty with a, a good degree of comfort, but also for most of us to change implies, and this is like a sociocultural reality, I think, to change implies that we were wrong before, right? That we were bad even before. And to withstand that is really largely impossible for so many of us, right? If I, you know, realize that smoking cigarettes is not for me and I stop smoking cigarettes, well, then when I was smoking cigarettes, I was wrong about that. I was yeah. like the bad girl doing that. And yeah. If we can uncouple those two things and we can actually delight in change and the discovery process and even hold all of these past versions of ourselves. Like I've heard you say that there are even things in past books that you've written that you now wouldn't write. So like you kind of wish you could like go back with an eraser. And that's also delightful. It's like, wow, look at look at this process of evolution. And when we can sort of reassociate or newly associate change with something that actually feels enjoyable, let alone empowering, 
then we are way freer, way freer yeah. to think. Yeah. I think it, in a way, like, I think this was sort of a gift to me from, I don't know where, but this path of, I think this, and then I investigate it, and then I was find out I was incorrect, has always felt like a good thing. Even though looking back, I mean, I would have to be a total fool to think that I got it right if I just examine what the things I've said and written over the years. I mean, it's not even close. And so I would have to deny so much reality that you can even is written on a paper. So I, I happen to look for these quotes, and I think this sort of encapsulates what I'm doing now, and I think what this summit is going to be about for both of us, and also that I didn't even realize how long I've been doing this. But when I, I remember when I got into medical school, like the first thing I did was I read all of Sherlock Holmes. Because I thought, well, he's a doctor, or Watson was, and he knows how to think. And so if you're going to be a doctor, you got to know how to think. And so here's a quote from Sherlock Holmes to Watson. How often have I said to you that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth? Right. You don't have to know what's real. You just, it's like looking for the pot at the end of the rainbow. You just shed off what isn't real. And somehow you arrive there where it is real. This is another one from a guy, Richard Rose, who I don't even know much about him. But he says, once a person steps on the path that is no path, there will always be tempted, always challenged. Unless you have an unshakable commitment to this work, you'll get sidetracked by everything that comes along. And there are lots of pretty illusions out there. The path to truth is very simple. You make a commitment for truth. And then whenever you come to a crossroads where you have to choose between the truth and something else, you choose your commitment to truth. That's all. So, you know, when I think about, so what am I going to present? It's presenting the road that I'm using, the method. The method is eliminate that that's not true, that doesn't pass the logic test, the reason test, the smell test, etc. You know, there's another one from a really interesting guy, Leo Tolstoy. Everybody knows him. Progress consists not in increase in truth, but in freeing it from its wrappings. The truth is obtained like gold, not by letting it grow bigger, but by washing off from it everything that isn't gold. And when I was 20, I didn't realize, I can, I can stop there, but I didn't realize that's what I was doing. But now in retrospect, I think that's what I was doing. And of course, then you make mistakes, but you find yourself closer and closer to the pot of gold, and I'm not sure what the pot of gold actually consists of. I hope to find out one day. But that's why I love partnering with you so much, because you are looking at things. Is this really so? Do I have to be like this? Who told me to be like this? Why did I become or decide this is who I am, or this is reality? Because if it's not true, 
it's going to prevent you from, you know, on a simple level healing, right? That's why you get sick, because you believe stuff that isn't true. You know, and I have so many examples. You, I have friends, they believe there's a virus. Guy, anthroposophical doctor, believes there's a virus, spends his whole year giving HIV drugs to AIDS patients, gets the shots, fourth shot kills him from a blood clot. Why did he die? Because he believed in viruses. Right. It'll kill you. So if you don't want to be killed, which is what most of us, or you don't want to be sick, or in a way, it's not so bad to be sick, it's probably not good to be killed. But to be sick means your life, the world is showing you this is an obstacle that you haven't looked at yet. That's a great thing. Even once you see it like that, then it does. it's like you say, it's not scary anymore. It's a gift. Yeah, there's so much overlap with the relational integration and healing process because first you have to identify your no right you have to identify what is not working you know i I call it like where you're trying to buy eggs from the hardware store where you are trying to source something from the impossible place that is not available there health from the allopathic system right and once you identify what is not working where you are like stuck in that you know sort of infinite treading water then you're liberated to understand like what it is that you actually want and what actually, you know, is, is going to inspire, you know, your lived experience. So, yeah, I I've come to the same, especially as I explored health and I would say specifically germ theory, but also cosmology that I, I came to the same conclusion. Like once I have a good idea of what I learned that is not actually true and here's why, then it becomes just sort of like a, a playground exploration of what might be and entertaining different ideas without attachment. And, you know, we and our colleagues, we talk about the fallacy of replacement, right? How often it's the case that when people are presented with the cognitive dissonance of this is not actually true, this thing that you learned in grade school or whatever, this is not actually true. They want you to tell them what is true, right? So if it's not, you know, if, if rabies doesn't come from a dog bite, then what is it, you know? And that's actually right? A logical fallacy. It's not actually part of the investigative process to also come up with the secure and valid truth. It's the responsibility of those interested in in thinking freely to simply identify what is inaccurate. So I would love to touch on what you think, because I know you've identified so many of these. Do you think you could choose like three of your favorite untruths that you've been exploring? They could be however big or however small. Yeah. And also to say all these errors that you've spoken about that I've made, and I speak about them, they all, as far as I can see, well, they come from three sources. One, laziness. You know, I just didn't do my homework. And and then the second is, I believed that, quote, dominant narrative without looking into it enough. So I just said there was a chickenpox virus, but I didn't actually know there was. And the third reason is this, I gave like, what is the truth? Because I got suckered into it because there was something in me that felt uncomfortable with leaving it as, I don't know what rabies is, even though I actually now I probably do, but I didn't then. So I gave some answer 
to try to resolve that discomfort in myself. And it's always wrong. The giving an answer to resolve a discomfort in, in myself always seems to come up with the wrong answer. That's not how you get the quote right answer. You get the right answer by doing the same process. Is it real? Is it logical? Does it, you know, is it feel right? Is it intuitive? Can I do a control experiment and all that stuff? Once you do that, you may be able to come up with what's true. So with having said that, so the answer to, I don't know what the answer to the three, number one is viruses aren't real. And the reason I say that is, A, it's really important now, right? And not only is it important because it ends the whole thing we've been through in the last three years, it also gets you out of this, what I now call like the bone pointing of the so-called freedom movement, who are all about scary lab leaks and how horrible everybody's going to die and all this. That's just... Their bone pointing is like shamans pointing their finger at you. So you, you make yourself sick. Not that sh the shots are good. You know, that's ridiculous. But you've got to get to the bottom of this, which is there ain't no virus, never has been easy to prove. That's like kindergarten. Once you get through that, it frees up. So, so this huge thing, which everybody believes, and you can't go down the road of, well, everybody believes it, or or what do you what do you think about these people? They all, you know, none of these stuff. That's all off the table. The next is something to do with history, because, and the reason that's important, and this is what I would call an unproven hypothesis, very unproven, and I'm just going to explore this in the event. But is it possible? that the way we are living now, especially with regard to healing ourselves and healing the world and caring for the natural world is actually not even not the best way it's ever been done. It's not even close. Mm -hmm. And that there has been a way of seeing biology and seeing all living things and seeing how we were that people have known about, used, that has led to a way of life and outcomes that we can't even imagine. And the reason we don't know about them is because we believe in basically historical lies, like we're always getting better and better and better, and we're the best that's ever been. And I don't really think that's true. And so once you get out of that, people can start saying, wait a minute, you know, you think you mean people actually knew about like how to heal and how to create a harmonious society? And I'm not sure that they did, but I have some, I'll present some reasons why I think that may be true. I mean, it's interesting, right? How insidious that sort of linear ascension is. Yeah. So much of our programming from the biology of evolution all the yeah. way to the role of our superior technology and this idea that of course everything is evolving for the better now and this idea of that it's like non-linear or spiral or an otherwise yeah. like fragmented timeline is totally anathema to most of our consciousness so that's yeah exactly. open the whole rabbit hole 
Yeah, it's a linear ascension. We believe in the truth of linear ascension in, you know, in basically everything, every aspect of life. And I tell you, when you start examining the evidence that whether it's evolution or genetics, or even that there's such a thing as DNA, it is laughably incorrect. Mm -hmm. And that then it frees you one to say, so what do these people know? And how does this work? And what, you know, how do they do this? And maybe that there's a whole blueprint that we could rediscover. And so again, to me, that's not scary. That's fascinating. You know, like, and because we even have friends, you know, like Eileen McCusick, who's, you know, there was this whole thing about sound healing. And so now we have people who are looking into cymatics and trying to recreate it in a sense, in a format for us. I don't find that scary at all. I'd rather be treated for back pain with a tuning fork than opiates, you know, because opiates don't work and they make you sick. And I don't know why we, we would think that's scary, but we do. And that's the problem. So that's the second one. That's probably enough truths right there. Right? <laughs> so if I had to come, Save come up some for the 25th. Yeah. But yeah, it's a process of, and you know, I don't expect anybody to believe me. Oh, I think history is linear and evolution is real and DNA is exactly what they say it is. That's great. What I'm only asking is let's look at the evidence. Because if you get to a position, not you, but, and this is what happened. We both know this, so many people. No, I'm not looking at the evidence. Like, why not? Yeah, I think about how when you are, because, you know, I look through this this lens of our upbringing all the time. And when you are raised in, a, in a, an environment of insecure attachment and emotional immaturity, you know, with your primary caregivers, there are so many things that are not modeled for you. And one of them is actually listening right? So that the simple act of listening to someone is, is one of the hallmarks of secure attachment, where you can actually take somebody in and quiet your own self sufficiently to not be just waiting to interject your perspective or waiting to sort of commandeer the communication where you can actually take it in and not feel that it threatens you to be exposed to something that you don't fundamentally agree with, right? So it's it's really a deep topic, right? Like how can we be separate individuals having separate experiences and maybe even living in different realities, but still interact, right? Like how can, you know, we just listen. And, you know, I, I think it's like Bernadette Healy or somebody who had this quote about like, no one should be threatened by, by the process of inquiry, right? Like, why are we threatened by inquiry? And I think it's, it actually stems from that place, right? Because why couldn't somebody who fundamentally disagrees with you, fine, as you're saying, fine, but what would it cost to simply listen? And it costs a sense of safety, a sense of, you know, uh, security that's sourced by, preserving and protecting like our own camp, you know, so it's, it's a deep issue that we're, we're bumping up against here, especially, you know, the kinds of questions that you've asked, you know, because, because there are a number of untruths that you've exposed. And they even, you know, even in I like you're like the rhetorical police now, because like, there's so many words that I can't freely use anymore, <laughs> you know, like antibodies and cell and, you know, DNA and, you know, genes. 
because I have been compelled by the research that you've done into, you know, what may ultimately be a consensus reality that's built on these concepts, right? And not actually scientific evidence, you know, because you've gone there and what would it cost someone to just listen, you know, to where you've gone? Well, sometimes it can cost a lot. And I think I hope, you know, what we can do and offer to others is if you're somebody who finds this compelling, you know, and and exciting and inspiring, you know, you've taken the time to do this exploration and research. And I find you to be extraordinarily trustworthy in, in part because you admit when you don't know, right? You don't, take that bait. Maybe you did in the past. And and certainly I probably still do today. You don't take that bait of, you know, offering the explanation when you could just sit in, you know, what it is that we know isn't true. And there's a lot of things. I mean, it's like when you just ask the question, how do we know this? We come up empty handed (laughs) on a lot of these topics, right? Yeah. Well, and that brings up too an interesting question of that I want to just put out there. So why did I want to partner with you in this? And it's it's very clear to me. So I've spent my life looking at these subjects, like is the heart a pump and is cancer genetic and are there genes and, you know, are vaccines safe? Is water just wet? <laughs> yeah, it's wa- all, you know, all that stuff. But I've spent not, not that I'm not interested because I have been, but as far as like, asking the question or or trying to understand how did a human being including myself how did i get in the situation where i couldn't ask that question or couldn't understand when people said and i just said i don't know people are stupid <laughs> <laughs> or you know something and then i started listening to you and by the way i don't know if i've ever told you that you were the first one who I heard say there's no such thing as germs causing illness. Hmm. And anyway, so that was a huge thing for me because it's a huge part of my life now. So you talk about how you, because that's who we know best, but then other people got into that situation where they see the world like that. And again, I never got into that so much. Just I don't know why. I mean, I I was interested, but I didn't know much about it. And I didn't look into it so much. I was more like the mechanics of the heart. And to me, it's fascinating. A, it rings true so much of it, even though you don't, not necessarily saying it is true. But here's what I found, same process, I think, or similar to me. And so because I know, I know more about that now than I did three years ago, two years ago, really because of our interaction, it's helped me be able to do what I'm trying to do better. Mm -hmm. And then let other people know, you know, there's a reason why if I say there's no DNA making you determining who you are, or that oxytocin isn't why your child loves you. That's what people say. Oh, my God, how can you say that? There's a reason why you say that, that isn't about science or reason or logic. It's about like, you know, I don't want to paraphrase, but traumas and what's happened to you and how you were raised and society and all the rest of it. And it's actually damn helpful to know that. Mm -hmm. 
oh yeah, I don't have to go down that road. I don't have to fall in that trap of just believing something because my father said, if you don't believe it, I'm not going to love you anymore. Like who wants to do that <laughs> for the rest of their life? I mean, maybe some people do and they think they'll get kicked out of the tribe and get eaten by wolves and, you know, fair enough. But fact of the matter is that's probably not going to happen. Right. Nor is it your job to facilitate that. Right. Yeah. And, and I think as, you know, if you want to call it activists or teachers or, you know, healers or any of these positions of seeming authority around what is true, it's very, very easy to slide into that role of helper, caretaker, right? Facilitator of the truth. And imagine that it's our role to get someone to see something when it's not personal, right? When they can't, and it's not about, you know, it's not about information. I mean, if that isn't apparent yet with all of the, the evidence available to, you know, cut at the, at the root, everything that has been proposed in the past several years, then then you're not paying attention. But yeah, no, I appreciate that. I remember when I shared, I asked you to review my my second book and you said, you said something to the effect of, you know, agreeing with with a lot of what I shared. And then also that now you don't have to write that book. <laughs> right. You know, so obviously there's, you know, you, you get it and there's shared sensitivity around the nuances, nuances. Yeah. Here. Yeah. And, and here's also, an example of that. Because yeah. I, I said a minute, a while ago, when I'm public speaking and it's often live and I often, or sometimes not often, but I have the sense, I don't really think what I'm saying here is right. And it's hard because it's live, you know, and somebody might hear it. But one of the things is, and it's been with me my whole life. And here I am, I'm a doctor, right? My job is to help people. And I would be saying something like, yeah, the reason I'm saying this is so I can help all of you people out there. And something would go off in me that would say, Tom, I don't think that's the reason you're doing this. <laughs> and, and partly, I remember being in medical school. You know, here we are, all these people. There was no way you could convince me they were there to help other people. Right, right. It was, it was so not even close, you know, not even close. But, you know, you go through life thinking, even though my mother told me, you know, you don't really seem like you want to help other people very much. She told me that when I was like three. And she was right. But you go through life thinking, well, it must be true, because I'm a doctor. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, must be. And then I hear you say, you know, that's not really why we help people. I mean, I, there's other people who've said it too. But, and it's like such a relief. Mm. Like, I can get off that. Right. Well, and then I can... Yeah, I can just explore and share with people what I'm finding. It's much more fun. This business of trying to fool yourself is exhausting. It's yeah, exhausting. I remember the first time that I became aware of that was actually somewhat recently, maybe like two or three years ago. And I was thinking about when I started to work a suicide hotline in college, and I don't really know why I started to do that, but that's what led me into psychiatry because I was like mentored by psychiatrists. And recently, you know, like I said, I started to recognize that I did that again, not out of some altruistic impulse, but because I had that little tolerance 
for human discomfort, that I needed to be a part of the immediate solution so that I didn't have to be ever exposed to somebody having a problem, right? Now I knew how to immediately fix it, right? And part of the, the fix is to relieve that that sense within myself of the enormity of someone else's challenges, right? And I do think that's why most people go into medicine is because of that little tolerance for another's discomfort or a feeling of obligation or responsibility to manage or resolve. You know, a lot of us are what are called like parentified children, right? When we're growing up thinking it's our job to take care of our parents, you know, for, for various reasons. And it is liberating because you get through that, you know, you drop the mask of, of yeah. imagining. And that dissonance is not only felt within us, it's felt, you know, by others subconsciously, yeah. semi-consciously. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I would have, I would have done that, I think, because I would have, if somebody says, yeah, you know, Tom, I want to kill myself, I'd probably say, well, how are you going to do it? And, you know, how did you arrive at that decision? Well, you know, my girlfriend left me and, you know, oh, so what happened? You know, and I just, it would just, if some way be fascinating to me to hear, and then I would be relating, you know, well, does that ever happen to me? And, you know, did I think I wanted, you know, but it wasn't like, because I wanted to stop them. But I think doing that and connecting with the person and working it out probably would stop them better than probably a lot of other things. Totally. So at the end of this, yeah, yeah, at the end of that process, it's like, yeah, we're actually, we like each other. Why do why don't we like, <laughs> hey, yeah, I feel better now. Hang out for a day or two more. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, you like going skiing? Yeah. Let's, you know, whatever. But. <laughs> I love it. So, speaking of medical school, I know that we share many, many perspectives on, you know, the nature of health and also, you know, what makes you sick. And I know that in one of your recent live streams, you were talking about, I think you talked about four reasons that you've sort of distilled around what sort of like why people get sick, right? So if it's not their genes, and if it's not being exposed to invisible particles, you know, or germs, <laughs> so-called germs, it's not their brain chemistry that's like faulty, then like, what have you sort of come to as the, the primary pillars to consider when we're looking at illness in the framework that it's actually a wise response on the part of the body that is inviting you, right? As you said, to potentially explore something that is out of alignment or something that could evolve. Yeah. I mean, they're not only invisible, they're imaginary. It's like postulating that the reason for blown up buildings is a invisible unicorn that's been genetically engineered to be wired with explosives. And then you say, well, can you show me one? And they say, well, no, because they're invisible. So why do people, it's four reasons. One, they have an injury or an accident. In other words, you fall off a horse. Now, you can get into a whole lot of reasons why you were on the horse in the first place, and that's complicated. But to a certain extent, practically speaking, you fell off your horse and you broke your leg. So that's how one way. Second way is you're starving. And that could be typically for like nutrients, like food, but could be for love or support or emotional security or or truth or lots of things so there's a starvation aspect you're not getting what any normal living being needs in order to thrive 
And so your body will send you signals so that you go looking for that. You're not anxious because you have a disease. You're anxious because you're starving and you want in your body saying, you better go figure out, you know, how to catch a mouse if you're a cat. That's not a disease of an anxious cat. That's a cat who knows. So that's two. The third is, is a huge one, which is you're poisoned. So you can be poisoned from your thinking, from your feeling, from, you know, DDT or glyphosate or, you know, injectable stuff or pharmaceuticals. That's a huge one. I mean, electromagnetic fields, again, thoughts, et cetera. So that's, that's a huge category and very creative people have gotten with how they poison people. And the fourth, which I didn't appreciate so much until the last few years, is I think actually the mother of them all, or father, I'm not sure you probably know better than I do. I call it delusions. It's the guy who thinks they're viruses, suspends his whole professional career killing viruses with toxic stuff, decides to get an injection to stop him from getting a virus, and it kills him. So he's you could say it's the poisoning at the end which got him, but it's really delusional thinking. And that's where this truth quest comes in. If you insist on because of, you know, all the things you talk about traumas and whatever that you have to believe in nonsense, it will get you because you will say, I can't tolerate this. And so you will show yourself a innovative strategy pointing out how little you can tolerate this situation. And that's usually in the form of a trauma or sickness, or that's why you fall off the horse. Because your only reason you were riding a horse is, you know, because your mother told you you had to ride a horse to be a healthy person or something. And you didn't really want to ride the horse. So you didn't really learn how to ride a horse properly. And then the horse knows that and says, you'd be better off breaking your legs so you don't, you know, have to have to go through this anymore. You know, bees will sting you in the place that they know you need because they're trying to, you know, help you out. So this framework is predicated on there being deep meaning, right, to any so-called symptoms or expression of so-called illness is that it means something and it's a clue, right? It's a clue to invite you to investigate. And, you know, that reframe delivers you out of the field of fear and this triangulation, you know, against your body collusion with a system that knows better than you. And, you know, you just corrected yourself. And I do this all the time too, way more than you do, like refer to the body, the nervous system and all these things, like as if it's not you, yeah. right? Like right. you telling you about you. And it's just so deeply ingrained in our thinking, in our rhetoric, in the way that we move around, that this body is doing something. And then there's me over here. And, yeah. you know, when, when we resolve that fear, there's like a natural reunion that happens and a sense of embrace of whatever it is that the body's doing, knowing that, it, you know, this, there's a message to our awareness, right? And how do we grow this awareness? Obviously, that's a big part of why we're even having this conversation is because of the power and the delight of awareness. And, you know, that leads me to my last question, which is, 
is really, you know, why is it awareness? Like, why does the truth matter to you? Right. Are you, both of us are obviously very interested in deception, right. And the game of sleuthing what lies beneath. And that's a, you know, one of the frameworks spiritually, even for this human experience is, you know, lifting all of these veils so that we can come closer and closer to something that feels right and like a relief and like, oh, almost like a funny thing, you know, like almost like this arrival at the smirk. So what would you say is the reason that it matters to you? Like, why do you even care so much about the truth? Because not everybody does. Yeah, it's a great question. And Again, not to give away uh, sort of the punchline of the 25th, but I'll give it away, sort of. <laughs> because I have a, a hypothesis, I think would be the correct word, that we are all walking over the rainbow going home. And home feels like the right place for us. Mm-hmm. And the rainbow is the rainbow of shedding deception. And so if you're able to walk on that rainbow and the world will throw you all kinds of deceptions and obstacles, you know, and illnesses and yeah, all that stuff. And you just keep yourself centered and walk that rainbow because I'm going home and I have a feeling that home is the place to be. Mm. And it's a felt knowing, I guess, right? When you arrive. Yeah, I'm not because I'm not there. So I don't really know what it feels like to be. (laughs) But interestingly, again, a hypothesis is I actually am home, but I don't know it yet. Mm -hmm. And so I will arrive at me. Mm -hmm. And me happens to be the whole world. And then I will see. And I'd like to see that for myself. And then maybe other people will see it with me. And that sounds like more fun too. (laughs) Your intrepid curiosity is really a pleasure to behold. And I am as excited for your presentations as I am to, you know, give my own. And we're bringing on some of our favorite friends for meditation, embodiment, movement, music, and creating an experience that I think I know will be like none other available because we are some pretty funny people, the two of us. And if you are listening to this after the 25th, it'll certainly be recorded. And I I hope to create a ripple effect of inspiration and that kind of, you know, that kind of smile that comes to your face when you finally let go of something that was really... yeah holding you back, holding you yeah. down and creating a heavier experience yeah. of reality than is is necessary. So I'm I'm delighted to be collaborating with you, Tom. Thank you. Me as well. And yes, if people can take one more step on that path, that's a good thing. Because I know I will. Just uh, the sense of having to do this and get myself together <laughs> is, you know, has already borne fruit for me. What am I going to say? Yes, I love it. It's a it's a dialogue, you know, with those who also yeah resonate. So thanks all for being in this conversation. And we'll see you hopefully on the 25th for the next episode.